Hello, my friends. My name is Timothy Nelson. I'm artistic director of In Series. And one of the things that's central to who we are at In Series is the work we do to contextualize uh, theater and music and opera. Uh, and we do this through a series of director salons where we bring together scholars and artists in conversation about the themes of the work that we're doing and how it connects to contemporary conversations in the body politic. Uh, in this year, uh, the year of COVID, it's proved difficult to find a way to do that that also provides community. So for this year only, we've separated out the two aspects of our director salon and we'll be creating a series of digital director salons where we talk with artists from the various projects and also creating opportunities for community through our, uh, our online lounge, which is available through InVision. So I'm, welcome, I'm happy to welcome you today to the first of our 2020-2021 director salons. This one for our new film project of Gluck's Orpheus and Eurydice. And I have with me today Paula Sides, who's singing the role of Eurydice and Amor, I should say. I shouldn't leave her out. Absolutely. And uh, Benjamin Williamson, who's our, our Orpheus. And Andrew Alban, who's our translator. These are also three of my dearest friends and one of the great things uh, about doing work digitally this, this season is that we have the opportunity to work with people who are far away in the globe mm -hmm. and to bring them together in projects. And these are um, three brilliant friends and, and beautiful hearted people. And I thank you all three for, for being with me today. Well, we feel quite the same way. Yes, we do. <laughs> Happy to be. Now, I wanted to start today by talking about uh, Orpheus. This is a myth. Um, that, that comes from many sources that is very important to us as, as musicians, not only because the myth of course celebrates music and the power of music to, um, to conquer even death um, and even that which kills, but also because uh, historically speaking, uh, it is the myth that gave, gave narrative to the first, first operas, the first opera, the second opera, um, perhaps importantly called Eurydice and not Orpheus. Um, and then, of course, with the Monteverdi Orfeo, which is the first, say, the first opera that's still performed. And then after that, everything from Gluck to Philip Glass to uh, Irreverent Offenbach. It's a very, um, it's a theme to which we return many times. And I hoped we could each maybe share our personal experiences with the Gluck or with other versions of the Orpheus myth. Um, and Andrew, I know that in your scholarship, you you think about stories and you think about myth. So maybe we could also talk about um, why the Orpheus myth matters, why myth matters in this this one in particular. But maybe let's start with Paula and Ben and and your experience as performers with versions of yeah. of Orpheus. Yes, well, actually, yes, I um I've always been uh, completely enamored with uh, with this particular with looks um, uh, our setting of of the the pivotal aria uh, when he when he loses Eurydice, um, che farò senza Eurydice in the in the Italian in the, in the original Venice version, um, and it's just as a side note, it's been amazing to 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 kind of uh, be experience uh, to experience the wealth of music in the French version that we've mm -hmm. that we've been doing, and how that myth is just richer and deeper in the, in this version. Um, but I I've I've sung that aria in particular on on a number of occasions, and it's always. It's always, um, I think, because because it deals with grief in such a um, in such a powerful and and very very emotionally honest way. I mean, Gluck was all about he 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 
was trying to change the style of the time to go away from highly mm. overly ornamental and kind of bizarre plot lines to try to get back to something um, or, or sort of progress to something um, more honest and more true and more believable. And we all know the feeling of, I mean, I'm a couch nursing plenty of, we've both done plenty of crazy handle opera plots where you have these moments of emotional truth, but they're kind of contained within completely spurious and unbelievable plot lines. You have to just kind of really, really like kind of get on board. I love like uh, octet instead of triangle. Uh, you end up with just kind of this pentagon of madness uh, mm. that, that you don't get this, you don't often, you, you have very rare moments of beautiful honesty, simplicity and, and truth. Mm. And I think Gluck does that unbelievably well. Yeah. And, he he captures the essence of what someone's trying trying to say and distills it, and and I and it's it's very powerful because of that. It it, it is it really is and and it kind of musically, kind of you know kind of breaking form more um, in in amazing ways, which gives more much more strength to the recit and the the way that it kind of weaves between recit and accompanied recit and and aria. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of you who don't who don't know. Um, what I'm talking about. Um, it just kind of weaves more between the the kind of the uh, the storytelling, the kind of action, and the kind of emotional responses to that, um, in a way which feels so much more immediate and effective. And um, I mean, you'll see when you when you watch the film, it it's almost cinematic in the way that it does this. It's totally not like a bit of recit and a bit of recit and a bit of recit and in a very kind of formulaic way. Um, but I think that that aria which is which is uh you know in c major and it seems like if you play it in the wrong it's very easy to if you play it a bit fast and a bit jauntily it can it sounds like a almost um almost something just almost tritely happy but when in the in the context of grief is an amazing way of seeing the the kind of beauty uh, the, the painful beautiful pain of expressing grief in an honest way. And I think that what we've done, what you've done and we've all done with this, um, is kind of that that's at its, at the center of what we've done is that we want to show a journey of grief, which is, um, which is, um, which is positive. And the journey of or the, or the obvious myth where he, he goes, goes into the underworld to rescue his, his, his beloved who's died. I mean, who doesn't want to do that, right? I mean, it's it's a, it's one of the most pivotal, fundamental parts of human nature to, to to you know to want to have your loved ones back, and and the idea that the gods can hear this and then give you a chance, and then the power of music that Orpheus plays his lute to to kind of you know to, to make his way through the monsters of the underworld, and 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 then he gets to her, but then he can't look back at her, and then he and then he does, and on this we can talk so much about what what's going on there and the significance of this and how we've how we've done it but i won't give it all away straight away um but the 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 power in just simply wanting to have your loved one back and what it means to grieve is mm. is so so powerful uh, and i think of course it's contained within so many operas but the myth is sort of the most central part and i think probably explains why it was you know I was actually I was actually in British Youth Opera's version of the of the Jacopo Perry, uh, well a different telling Stephen Oliver's telling of of, the, of Eurydice, um, uh, but and the, the you know the Monteverdi is is amazing as well, um, but yeah you know, I'm, I'm probably probably I don't want to spend all my all the time talking but it's it's <laughs> yeah it's a wonderful um, 
kind of grief at its center in an emotionally honest way. I think I heard about the story first in high school. I didn't know, I wasn't kind of connected to classical music when I was a teenager very much. It wasn't part of my world. But the story was such a powerful one that we did in in um, literature. And, and it was, it is something that um, strikes you, I think, straight away when you first hear it. You know, this this feeling of, of um, you know, wanting him and, and love being being there wanting to give him a chance um because of seeing the beauty of his love and hearing the beauty of his love um it's it's a very uh and i think uridisa is is there's so many powerful elements in the way that she's portrayed i think and the way their relationship is portrayed in in the myth and her uh the way that we are kind of accessed like trying to see what the myth said but then trying to bring it into a modern um context of grief and and the way that if you were the one who is in the underworld or facing the prospect of death or being passed away and you see your loved ones what would you wish for them what would you want for them is it would of course you would want to help them to grieve. You would want to guide them if you could. I mean, if you were able, you'd also want them to know that if you were ready to let go. And I think that Uridisa's journey can sometimes, in the opera when I've seen it in the past, is it's, it's kind of this simplistic, it can often be portrayed in a simplistic way, but, but really the idea of not necessarily wanting to return for for whatever reason like that 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 is a part of the journey of death that is part of the journey of acceptance accepting your own death accepting that i do want to go you know on i do want to move on and i want you to move on in the world of the living and i want you to live in that world and 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 have an absolute rich marvelous life you know and and it's okay if i'm not there as well and i think that's a very incredibly powerful story that i think often doesn't get told mm. i'd maybe sort of build a little bit on that in the sense that you know this the, the way that you're thinking about your there paula is it's a it's a version of the Orpheus myth that, as you were saying, right? Like we don't normally think about Eurydice in this in as complex a way as we think about Orpheus. Um, and part of what's so interesting, I think, for me, like working on this project and thinking through these materials, is you know, like I'm coming at this from the perspective of uh, you know, I'm, I'm a professor of literature. I focus on the Middle Ages, and so like I'm thinking about the ways that this story gets retold and so many different ways historically, right? So you have um, from the Latin classical tradition, like normally you would think Ovid's Metamorphoses or Virgil's Georgics as the place where we get the kind of base narrative um, of, uh, of Orpheus. Um, and even there, right? Like what's so interesting about the Orpheus myth is that there's more to the myth than what we normally hear, right? So we, everybody knows 
who knows the myth knows the story of Eurydice being bitten on the heel by a, a, a serpent um, dying and then Orpheus playing the liar as he goes to the underworld, moving Hades and Persephone, bringing her back up and then looking back at the last minute and losing her, right? But then there's the story that comes after that, um, which is Orpheus's um, rejection of all uh, company with women, um, his uh, essentially running away to the forest and building uh, a kind of poetic cult that attracts all these young men. Um, and he builds this like homosocial and kind of erotic community um, with all of these young men who are attracted to his poetry, attracted to his singing. Uh, and then at the end, um, the women of the surrounding community end up being possessed by a frenzy over the fact that he refuses their affections and they tear him limb from limb and throw his head into the river. And as that head flows down the river, it continues to sing. Um, so in a story that we normally associate with lyre playing and artistic creativity, um, there's this other element to the story that is also all about passion and desire um, and the ability of the poetic voice to last beyond death, um, not just the voice that accompanies the lyre, but the voice that mourns its own passing becomes a, a big piece of the story in the way that it gets sort of told in the classical tradition. Um, and when you think about that, I mean, there's something really cool about that, right? The, the choice of the lyre um, as Orpheus's sort of instrument is important, right? The lyre is an attribute of Apollo. Um, the lyre is uh, an instrument that you can both strum with your hand and then sing and produce words while you sing. So it's associated with more um, rational and intellectual kinds of making um, as opposed in, in sort of classical Greek culture to the aulos, the, the blown sort of double reed pipe, um, which because you're blowing into it doesn't allow you to produce language. Um, and so the aulos is usually associated with much more emotional, much more passionate kinds of music and the lyre with much more intellectual and philosophical kinds of music. Mm -hmm. um, so it's so interesting, I think, that inside the Orpheus story, um, when you take it in its sort of fuller sense, there's this really cool dia like dialogue that happens between reason and thinking and artistry and um, aesthetics. Um, and the kind of basic emotions of love and mourning. Um, like they're all woven in there when you sort of take the bigger story. Um, and there's this long, long history of retellings of the Orpheus story. I'm actually gonna be teaching tomorrow um, uh, this marvelous Middle English romance called Sir Orfeo, um, which takes the Orpheus myth and like transports it into medieval England and turns Orpheus into an English king and Eurydice gets stolen away into fairyland and he has to go into fairyland in order to retrieve her. Um, wow. So there's this amazing tradition of the Orpheus story being retold and played with and adapted to different cultural questions and needs and poetic interests and thematic which interests. Is, which is Andrew also a source, one of Mozart's sources for magic lit. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. I didn't know that. That's very cool. I didn't know wow. that. Hmm. Yeah, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant um, uh, uh, sort of Middle English adaptation of a, of a Breton Lay um, that, uh, 
you know, we, we even think it, it appears in the major manuscript that I think Chaucer might have owned. So he may very well have known this story as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. What I love about what we're saying is that we're connected to a, a lot, well, we're products of our time, so we would be, we're connected to a sort of larger conversation that's happening in, in the way we as a society and as healthcare systems approach death and that to celebrate life, one has to acknowledge death. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Um, and, and the same way with, with the myths, we, we think of them, this is what you were saying, Andrew, that as existing in an, in an er form, but, but that's, that's totally um, not true. I mean, the Orpheus legend, is, even Ovid, is, is sort of had to have been affected, uh, influenced by the Alceste and this idea of going to the dead and, and bringing, bringing them back. And there's the version that Andrew mentioned, the ending with, the, the, with Orpheus being drawn and quartered, um, and, and this is funny. So, so the, the Italians thought that the, the, the lyre was um, an instrument that's actually called the lira di braccio, which is played like a fiddle, but it has a flat bridge. And so you can play chords on it. And singers would accompany themselves while playing this instrument. They thought that's what Orpheus played. Um, so there's this wonderful picture, I think, in, in, in the Palazzo Ducale in Venice of Orpheus um, being pulled apart by, by, by the ladies. And one of them has his his lira de bracha that she's about ready to smash over his head. <laughs> 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 great painting. Um, but there, but that was the original ending for the Monteverdi. That was the libretto, the libretto that Monteverdi received from Strigio. Um, and he chose another ending, uh, which which is Apollo coming down and saying, um, "Now you can come up with me." But in either event, he stops living. He ceases to live. Mm -hmm. um, and what I love, what we've done in a way, is give Orpheus a future. Mm. Um, because he acknowledges her need to die. He, he grieves for her. And um, I think, sorry, to, I don't need to Not at all. No, but I think, I think the thing is, what is, a, what is the purpose of, of a myth? Like, what is the meaning of a myth? And how do we see myths now? And, you know, what are we trying to, you know, what we're trying to say in, in opera in general, in art in general? And I think that I certainly hugely admire um, th this process and your creativity in, in in having the, the flexibility to tell a story which is um you know a pr you know it's it's what story what are we trying to say about you know are we i think of course you can you can have a story uh you can have the myth which ends in tragedy and sort of it, it can sort of uh, be a reflection of how we how we shouldn't behave but often it often it feels um like a kind of an easy um uh just kind of going down the line of wish, wishful thinking and wish fulfillment and or wouldn't it be nice if everything was sort of either, you know, saved at the end, Dex ex machina, or it all goes to a really horrendous place and nothing ever is, is really fundamentally changed. And what we are saying with this is, I mean, because it's, it's in the most intimate, most modern way is, is as you say, is showing, showing the next, the, the next chapter, like how do you progress and, you know, beyond beyond grief or process grief in a, in a healthy way um, and how your loved ones, as you said, you know, would want you to do that. And I think it, it took on an, it's a very significant new meaning for me um, personally, because I think every time I'd sung the, the, uh, the, the original Que Faro, um, it had kind of thrown me into this, into a, I mean, you know, he tries to kill himself after, um, afterwards in the, in the original, um, and it, it kind of throw, threw me into this kind of pit of despair, um, which was never a particularly healthy thing. Um, 
and I mean I I you know as as you as as we we all know but people listening won't um I lost my my mother to cancer when I was when I was 10 years old um and so this this piece this entire piece has an enormous extremely strong resonance um for me um and I think that having seeing it in this light massively I mean even just you know helped me sing that piece in a way which felt mm. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't catastrophizing something. It wasn't. All, I was all, already used to catastrophizing and feeling like it was a, a really a, a kind of. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. There was like so. My emotional state was sort of kind of concretized and preserved at that place, and and not and it, and it and it, of course there's change and of course there's growth, but it's very easy for most people because grief is so painful to um, to sort of self-identify with that pain within them and it takes a lot to open it up to look at it to to confront it and i really hope that this opera allows anybody who um may be doing that to some extent to to realize that there is a another path and oh god it's it's a it's painful i mean this entire opera is 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 mm. is um is painful you know to i, I mean to even to, to do to to see when we watched it uh, when we watch back on some of the scenes um but it's it's real it's it's couldn't be further removed from the separation of um thought we're always fighting against this but the kind of sort of inevitable separation of the audience and the and the um and the and the kind of the performance on stage um through all sorts of things but now now we're hoping this is coming to you directly through your screen in your in your in a space that you you know you feel um comfortable in to explore um, whatever you want to feel without anyone watching, and I think that's that in itself is a powerful thing, and that's why I'm so we were so excited when we first sort of you know thinking about doing this as, as a film, and um, uh, it, it was exciting to as, as you you know as you were saying Tim to for, for us to have that window, um, direct more of a direct window, and of course just being a film and being being able to see emotions up close and um, uh, yeah. Well, speaking. I think I think um, something that that you started hinting towards is um well i hope you'll agree is is the cr the credit is gluck's um gluck wrote other arias of pathos he wrote tragic arias of grief he didn't put the he didn't put k faro or j padu in c major simple beautiful incredibly beautiful um because that was a sort of uh, conceit of of his post 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 baroque or rococo style, um, and he didn't know how to write a grief aria. It was a very conscious choice to write the aria that way, and not as this largesse of of uh, emotional outpouring on the stage. Um, which I think I mean I don't know about for you, for you, but for me it's always been a problem in understanding the piece that Gay Faroe didn't seem to fit the moment when I understood the moment that way. And that gets to a larger thing that I, I, we all know because we're musicians and, 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 and lovers of, of the opera tradition, um, but some of our viewers may not know, the Gluck is, is incredibly important musicologically. And we're taught in, in um, Music History 101 that this is the revolutionary opera. <laughs> this is the opera that changed the history of opera. I never understood why. I never understood why this opera was so revolutionary. Um, partially because it didn't change Gluck's uh, style of, I mean, 
what we love about the Orpheus that it has three characters, that it's concise, it's it's under 90 minutes. I mean, it has this like direct boom. That 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 is not what what changed opera because the rest of Gluck's opera are not that. I mean, it's, it's he, he didn't like stumble upon how to be concise. Um, it's and, and so I never understood. It. And I, I directed my first production of the Gluck, and um, a good friend of, of of Ben's and mine, Peter Sellers. I, I met I was having coffee with him a week before I was leaving to do this production, and he said, "Oh, I've never done it because I just don't know what it's about." And I. I realized, oh my gosh, I have no idea what the piece is about. Actually, <laughs> I don't understand why it's revolutionary, and I don't, I, I don't know what it's about. Um, and then, if you spend time with the with Gluck, you realize what's revolutionary about it. It opens with this um, this overture that is high classical. I mean, it could easily be the Mozart. It's sort of the um, the 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 high point of innovation for his time. And then the curtain goes up. And if you imagine you're that opening night audience, the curtain goes up and you're, first of all, you're thrown into, she's already dead, which you're thrown into the middle of the action. Whereas every other version of the Orpheus up to that, you at least have the wedding. You at least have her dying. You have that, you're thrown into a man in grief. Um, and that's incredibly innovative. Um, and then the music he chooses for that is this, sort of, I mean, it's almost a, a, a Spanish pavan. It's a Renaissance style. So you're like going all the way from the high classical to, I mean, that, that must've been terribly confusing for that first audience. Um, and you understand, of course, because that's what death does, right? I mean, it, it rips us apart in that way. Um, and, and that's what, what Gluck's doing. And then what's really amazing is, it just as we've talked about the Orpheus is, is part of our cultural vernacular. We know the myth, those audiences would have known how the story goes. You go to, to the river, he crosses the river, he's in this horrible hell. And we get to the hell moment. <laughs> and it's some of the most beautiful music ever written. It's a paradise. It's yes. stunning. Mm. Um, so he's depicting death as this, as a place of release of, uh, I mean, why would she want to leave that? Um, I don't think that's why most music teachers call it revolutionary. But for me, that's what's revolutionary about the piece was the audacity of Gluck to look at myth and and tell it in it and to own it to tell it tell it in in a different um in a different way and of course we've we've told it in a different way and part of that and i hope andrew you can talk about this because i know this was important to to you in thinking about part of that was giving letting the piece be about a man in grief because that's clearly what the piece is about but giving agency to eurydice and part of the way we've done that is by making eurydice the musician or the one whose musical prowess we witness. Um, and uh, by turning one of that most beautiful piece of music that, that it isn't written for singers, it's a, it's a dance um, that opens the, the hell scene. Um, that's, that's a very famous flute student. Any Suzuki flute student will have played that, that piece. Um, turned it into aria. We've, we've co-opted it to be, to be an aria uh, for Eurydice that she doesn't get in the original. Um, and the text for that we, we, we chose was from uh, Rilke's uh, Orpheus sonnets, uh, the, last, the last text from the Orpheus sonnets. Um, so I, I would love to, to have us talk for a moment about, um, and maybe, maybe, maybe hearing first from, from, from Andrew about that idea of giving her agency. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and then Paula maybe, maybe talking about that uh, piece we added and 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 Ben you you were instrumental in 
how we put the words with the music, that process yeah. we went through to figure that out. And you also sang yeah. another setting of the same text uh, on our on our gala. So you're so so that text is very important. And then maybe we can shift it back to Andrew to talk about the Rilke sonnets and why we w what it means to have that poem there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I mean, as I've been listening, there's just been uh, my my brain's been firing in like twenty million directions. Um, uh, I mean, one thing that I wanted to to just like highlight, and and maybe Tim, you'll have a thought on this because um, I know we talked about it. Um, so we had the conversation had had started talking about the um, the revolutionary quality of um, Luke Orpheus um, and and the sort of innovations that he builds into the Orpheus myth, um, and. I mean, one of the things that, that stood out to me as you were talking about that, and then earlier on when we were thinking about the different retellings of the Orpheus myth in various various hands, um, is that there does seem to be this thing where like the core narrative of the myth seems to be a stable element, right? Like it's a culturally recognizable narrative um, that has this really powerful potential, right? Like it gives us a kind of, um, in a really interesting way, it actually gives us a kind of um, uh, like stereotypical, um, uh, uh, epic journey, um, but one that doesn't end in the way that epic journeys normally end, right? Like it ends with sorrow. It ends with the failure of the, of the quest that the journey. Well, if I can just jump into, because it might inform what you're about to say, the, yeah. the thing I also wanted to say earlier is the Orpheus myth also became a trope for Christ and mm -hmm. Clement yes. in his apologies it links the, the, the songs of Orpheus to the new song of Christ and the yes. idea that he goes to the underworld to save his beloved. What does it mean that he failed? Yes, yes. What does yes. that mean? Right? And so there's this neat thing. It happens in some of the medieval exegesis around um, the Orpheus myth where like it becomes this, this sort of dual reading where like, yes, so it becomes uh, an allegory of Christ, but it also becomes an allegory of the sinner, right? That like Orpheus is the sinner, Eurydice is the soul. In sinning, the soul has gone to hell. And then in, in repentance, um, Orpheus goes to hell to retrieve the soul, but then he falls back into sin again and the soul returns to hell, right? So it's about like, being seduced by the things of the world and not paying attention properly to the things that are divine. Um, so there's this weird duality to how that how that myth gets read and it all hinges on the look backwards, right? Like the look backwards is the thing that kind of messes it all up. Um, messes up the kind of like easy interpretations. It messes up the the sort of er narrative of the epic epic journey. Um, it messes up the the sort of love plot um, that we want to see sort of end in the happy ending. Um, uh, but what was what was occurring to me was that um, in all of these retellings, right, you have this kind of stable center, and then the ending seems to be this like strangely malleable and interchangeable and retellable thing. Right, like the ending seems to be this intensely fluid and um, um, open space for doing something with the myth, for making the myth do a kind of work um, that is more than just its static repetition of a set of moral ideas. Um, and so, I mean, I think like there's neat stuff that we ended up doing with the ending that I think is, is I, I don't know of, of a telling of the Orpheus myth that does this at the end of that myth. Um, but Gluck as well, right? Like he does- Gluck as well, it's a weird ending. It's a really <laughs> weird ending, right? Like all of a sudden deus ex machina, Amore shows up and then like everybody's happy. Um, and you get the wedding scene that you didn't get at the beginning of the of the, of the the opera, right? Like you sort of get it at the end. Um, 
So there's something very strange about like the ending of the myth and, and how the end of the myth ends up doing various kinds of things. And it even got me thinking about what you had said earlier about like the connection to the social, to the question of like healthcare and the way that we now culturally think about end of, end of life care, right? That like so often that becomes a thoroughly medicalized narrative um, and in medicalizing that narrative, that plays into various kinds of like infrastructural, economic, and political things that shape the way that we think about medicine and the ways that we think about health. But I think something like this narrative also invites us to think about like, well, what about the human side of it, right? Like what about the ways in which we look to narratives, the way that we look to art, the way that we look to music in order to help us work through the really insanely difficult things that occur and, and, and happen and that we go through emotionally. The qualitative um, over the quantitative. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there's a way in which I think um, like a work like this draws our attention to just how important that side of like health and care um, are need to be practiced. Um, it invites us to pay attention to that side of things that oftentimes in a like pretty thoroughly scientized and, and medicalized culture, we, we overlook or don't value as much. Um, and I think in some ways like Eurydice's role in this opera, uh, like it's a, it's a really elegant way of, of like drawing our attention back to, right? Like the process of grief and the process of mourning, there's weird kinds of like cultural shame and cultural, um, like unspeakability that surround the process of grief and mourning um, and such, and such a, a large amount of fear yeah i mean I think, I mean that that's i mean it's like all of these different endings or versions mm -hmm. of people trying to deal with the fear of mortality and 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 you know it's it's you know especially in, in our in our cultures um we we do we it's, it's all as you say it's it's very you know you say medicalized narrative it's all the the emotion the the heart the it's so painful that it's easy to close your eyes you know um you know it's it, it, it it's 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 very difficult to confront directly um as as we've talked about before you know that the culture makes it just very difficult um and you know, we, other cultures don't, you know, other cultures make it easier or diff, I mean, different religious cultures make it easier. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that especially in kind of, in, in kind, of, kind of Christianity is ten, generally tends to not give you a very large window um, for kind of an, an outward expression of your grief. Um, and it's mm -hmm. very formalized. It's, um, and I think, you know, it's kind of just expected that this grief, this type of grief goes on unaided sort of with very very close family members if you have who you know depending on i mean a lot of people i think are, are, are left without guidance in the not only at the time of the most one of you know the worst one of the most significantly um tragic things to happen um but just generally not prepared for it in any way you know it's, mm -hmm. it's not a part of our culture we don't have these myths pervading our culture in the in the well, well the myth pervades our culture but the it, where, where it gets to well what, well, what should I do? It just mm. it just throws up its hands and has a mm. has a whatever kind of ending, it, you know, which um, kind of any an easier. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's either it's either denial, Don't it's either look. pretense, it's either escapism. Um, mm. It's just and and I know that's this. Should, true. That's where our piece begins. I mean, I think what you're saying so lovely because we have these rituals surrounding loss, 
Um, but what happens when the door closes and everyone's gone home and you're alone with oh. your loss? And that's the moment and that's that we're trying to explore. That's where we start. I think it's. Yeah. I think that's what is so incredibly powerful is that it, that um, that option at the end as well, where it it what what happens after what 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 happens where it's like kind of finding that journey of when the door closes and then what happens when you're ready to open the door again mm. and how do you get there how do you get you there know, and we're 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 opera company in washington dc and every four years around this time it's hard to think about anything that's hard to have a conversation that is in some way connected to the election um so just so just this morning um at brunch with a friend um I was saying how I feel they were asking how you how you look at so much evidence and and still are able to to blindly put that aside. And I said, I think it illustrates just how hard it is to say I'm wrong. It mm. is so hard for us to do that. Um, and we, in the same way, it goes against everything inside of us to to look at death as something that isn't necessarily a negative. Mm. Or to say that Orpheus looking back is not failure. Doing something different from what you set out to do is not failure. Um, and what's wonderful about the Gluck is there's no reason for us to assume he doesn't decide to turn back. Mm. Uh, and that's that's what our version of it, the, the crux upon which it hangs, um, mm. that he turns back with intention. Um, and, and, and that's not failure. Um, it's so interesting. I, that's evolution. Yes. There, there's something so interesting about that, the way that you've you've sort of framed that, and that when, when we think about when we think about the the way that tragic dramatic plot normally works, mm -hmm. or the way that comedic plot normally works, right? Tragedies normally end with the death, and comedies normally end with the marriage. And it's there's always for me when I've been reading, like if I'm if I'm reading. You know Shakespeare or you know anything that's uh, according to these classical models, right? If I'm reading those texts, there's always this question that lingers off in the, in the back of my mind about like, well, but like what happened after, right? Like what happens after the death? What happens after the marriage? Because there's always something unresolved. There's always something that hasn't been fully worked out. There's always some character that's still left as a question mark. Because both of those are so actually beginnings. Yes. Yeah. And I just want to I just want to add to that that of course you know at the end of of many operas, especially Handel operas that I've done, the only way to kind of hint at this is sort of in the in this in the logistical placement of the characters in their relation to each other like suggesting a kind of a potential future line um a uh, disagreement or, or you know that the classic sort of in the play out somebody goes and kills somebody well it's like play, <laughs> quick, quickly play out the next the next next thing which which is which can be very effective but it's just as you say this kind of just sort of it, it kind of cuts off where, where it starts to get interesting and very real as well. Um, uh, yeah, do any of us believe that the quartet at the end of Cosi Fantute are going to be happy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No way! Yeah. No. And I think I think making this the turn, um, especially in this context, I don't know how much to give away of it, about it, but, um, um, you know, the, the agency of the turn back and what it signifies and also in the, well, I will say, you know, in this version where it's uh, uh, um, kind of, it's not so much just, it's not just his um, his memory, but it's kind of a relived experience where you sort of have given me permission to, mm -hmm. and guiding me through this sort of um, mm -hmm. 
how do you how would you describe it, Tim? Well, um, amore. It's like it's like love wanting to guide him through, wanting to guide him through the process because she wants him to be happy, which yeah, which course, is the agency that our version gives her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Gives her that voice of being able to, in an ideal scenario, when you're faced with the acceptance of death yourself, what would you say to someone that you want to have a full, full, beautiful life? And, and, you know, let, let love startle, let life startle you with laughter once more. I think it's one of the most beautiful, line, beautiful yeah. lines in the piece for me, because of course that's what she wants. Of course that's what she wants him to be surprised every day with beauty and with love and life. And what's beautiful about that is, I and mean, we'll talk about Stiller Fine, but other than Stiller Fine, that agency mm. is in the piece. Gluck gave her that agency. Yes. 200 yes. years of men producing opera. Yeah. Just refuse to see that agency. <laughs> this is the problem. It's, it, it is all there. It is there. And, and the, the, and I, I think it, this is such a, such a powerful telling of absolutely seeing her in this context, just seeing her journey and, and allowing it to be told, especially um, with the added complexity of her needing to sing Amore because we're in COVID and Amore can't <laughs> Well, be. and that's, I, I'm not going to mention that because I, I had wanted to say earlier, of course, you sing both roles. Yes. The reason you sing both roles is because you are married to this beautiful man next to you and you guys can safely film an opera together. Exactly. But, um, but the piece is stronger. The piece is infinitely stronger for them. Oh yeah, it, 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 it wonderful. Is. It really, truly is. You know, I don't think wonderful line from Rumi that I'm always returning to. Um, that was in our our, our Zerse of this. Um, there's always a mutual embrace happening between essence and accident. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, it, of course we're I think we're informed by whatever providence has, has forced us into doing it this way. Yes. I think that the the the, the point the points which make the most sense of of the, the the kind of the medium as film the things that you could you can only do in film and the things that would only have mm -hmm. happened because amore is zuridisa are some of the most exquisite moments which is almost it, it is so much like it is it has been created at that moment as mm. as a film like it's it's you know when, when those um when those i don't know how how, how much of the plot are we allowed to, how much are we allowed to say about this is, when Tim, is this coming out is this a teaser <laughs> <laughs> There, there are no spoilers. The other nice thing about myths, so you can't really have spoilers. Yeah. So, <laughs> speak away. Well, well, you know, you, you know, um, Eurydice leaves these videos behind for for um, for me. Uh, you know, just you know, say you know, as you would want to do, especially now, you know, to to, mm. to say you know, be okay, live on, and um, I'm I'm watching these videos, and you know, it, the the. The, the fact that it that it isn't love and that it is love it is love through her but it is mm -hmm. her and the poignancy of that just in itself is just so powerful so powerful um and yeah, yeah i think it, it just works it works so beautifully um in the way that we're telling it but and, and it does this really cool thing i think where um as we we're saying before right you really see all of a sudden becomes this like surprisingly and compellingly agent of character right um, and by allowing Eurydice and Amore to sort of like weave together in this way, that that sort of hybrid character ends up 
switching places with Orpheus in the way that that narrative normally gets told, right? Like Eurydice is the one who gets to sing. Eurydice is the one who has the power to impact the world. Eurydice is the one who invites um, Orpheus to turn back and to make that turning back not a negative thing, but a recuperative and a life-giving thing. And what's great um, about that, and, Andrew, is that by giving her agency, he's given agency to yeah. turn back. Yeah. Because yeah. that's what, what happens when we give other people space, we get more space. Yeah. yeah. And I think that I, of course, I, and also what's so beautiful about that is that, you know, anybody, um, you know, I was talking about how people might, you know, want to deal with grief in a, in a better way. But of course, people, it's just as important that people come away and think, well, how, how do I want to, you know, what do I want to leave behind for, you know, how, what do I want to say to people before I go, you know, how do I, um, how do I help them before I go, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's such a hard thing to confront, but, but of course, such an unbelievably powerful thing that he has these videos, that he has um, her to guide him. And of course, some, you know, often the case, often we, people that aren't fortunate mm -hmm. enough to have that. Mm -hmm. um, and there is this sort of, you know, this this empty space um, where, where you, you have to, either you don't have any guidance, you know, there is, there is no guidance. Orpheus is lucky in this, in this telling to have her, guiding him um well and i would i would add to that ben um again peter sellers once told me that the the reason he did he modernized the duponte operas wasn't to was wasn't to 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 be provocative it was to take provocative off the table it was to say okay now we're all on the same plane we can understand these conventions because they're in our language and in the same way that the idea of of speaking with the supernatural was was not anathema certainly to the Greeks and the Romans, but even to the early Enlightenment, um, it, it, there is a line between that and a video recorded on your computer. Like it is the yeah. same way we we would connect with um, uh, what is the wonderful term you use, Andrew? The, uh, uh, we've talked about this before. The way we receive information through something else, um, like mediation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that, that sort of mediation with an outside force happens now through technology. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. But it is still a deus ex machina. The machina yes. is the computer. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so, so, so the, the added aria, I want to make sure we talk about this, mm. um, which really wasn't about giving her agency. It was because it is the most gorgeous piece <laughs> written. Thank um, you, Jim, for writing the most stunning aria I've ever sung. So uh, <laughs> we don't... We don't have a flute. Um, we, have the <laughs> we have the amazing ten fingers of Simone Lutu, uh, but I wasn't willing to lose that piece of music. So, um, and we did cut one of Eurydice's other pieces. Um, so I thought it was only fair that we give her a, a piece of music. Um, and we decided to make that into an aria. And I think this was after Andrew and I had, had an early co conversation about, about myth. And I wanted to make sure our piece is in open conversation and acknowledges that we are part of a evolving and living tradition of storytelling. Um, so the text we chose was from another Orpheus version, the Rilke Orpheus sonnets, sonnets which, are, which are one of, if not his major piece of, of work. Um, so I can, can we talk a bit, maybe Paula and Ben, if you could talk about that what it is to take a piece that wasn't written for your voice, Ben fitting the words to it. Um, what what it is to have 
this piece, which I think people will agree actually is maybe the best, one of the best arias in the piece. Um, <laughs> it really is. It really is. And then, Andrew, if you could maybe talk about the Orpheus sonnets, which might not be familiar to everyone. Sure, sure. I think the when we first when when Tim was like, okay, we need to we need to look at you know I have this piece of music and put these words and and he threw it down and we just sat at the piano, didn't we? We sat at the piano and we just started singing and putting it together and and I mean that the fact is that I think I went away and, and did something else and then when I came back you <laughs> created something unbelievably beautiful oh no I mean I, I do not take any <laughs> just... credit for this I mean Tim, Tim sketched sketch it I, I tweaked it um but it, it was just you know what 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 line do you take how how floridly can you sing how much like a flute are you um and, and answers much more like a lot. Flute than I would have imagined she's yeah, like quite, quite key, which I think is incredible and exactly keeping the keeping the original key we were thinking we we're discussing changing the key is you know it goes up to yeah. top C's and stuff but um, you know, beautifully, voice. beautifully sung. I mean, and, it, and I think, I, think, um, I mean, it, it was a joy simply because, um, yeah. I mean, because of how beautiful the music was. And then, of course, this this poem at this mm. time, he's he's just kind of gone back, gone back, and there she is. He hears her voice, mm. and he's and he's kind of drawn, you know, down 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 the stairs to to her. And what, and what is she singing? She's singing this 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 poem about grief and about about how how to you know to process grief in a, in in a, in a way which um is so so deeply mystical i mean like andrew you need you can talk about this far more eloquently than me i'm sure um but it's um i mean like one of the i mean like, i i always think about it from from the end of it you know i, I mean should we read some of this out i mean the just the, the at the very end um uh you know in you this have night, the whole poem ben yeah i could read out the whole poem Do you mind reading it yeah i'd be happy to um, silent friend of those far away, sense how your breath expands space. Amidst the beams of the gloomy belfry, let yourself toll. It is a succubus who feeds on your sustenance. Enter and exit in your metamorphoses. If your experiences have been painful and drinking them has been bitter, turn them into wine. In this night of excess, be magically empowered at this crossroads of your feelings and become the meaning of this strange conjoining. And if what of earth forgets you, say to that earth of silence, I flow. Say to the rushing waters, I am. And I think that that couplet at the end is, say to, say to that earth of silence, I flow say to the rushing waters, I am, that kind of antithesis between moving with nature, with, with life and death and being in the flow of the universe, of everything, and, and this sort of, this sort of uh, being, you know, this sort of not more, this sort of the essence of, of being in whatever kind of, not static, but um, uh, almost timeless state is. I think I think it's just so I mean I, I can't I can't again it's it's hard to really express this kind of poetry. But but the, the meaning is, you know, you can just read it for you know, a thousand times and find more meaning in it. But um yeah. Well when we when we first uh, sang through it, I think when we were when we were first seeing through it in this kind of celestial line 
that just soars above and just kind of floats there with this feeling of it of it being this ethereal um, beauty. I mean, it's just beautiful. I mean, it, you just feel like you're floating in an expanse in the clouds and it, um, it leads beautifully into cloud the sky, which is like the, the next section, which is this wonderful dream. But I, I feel that it is, that is the dream, is to be able to inhabit a space in life where the bitterness can become wine, where you can accept and you can, it can enrich your life. The pain, the beauty enriches and becomes something that, that you savor the moments, you savor your life and you can also release it. I mean, what is your process? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Because you process death, you can savor the moments you can enjoy, you can embrace rather than being controlled by the fear of something that you are unable mm. to to um, acknowledge it. I, it's a it's a uh, it's it's a powerful thing that I think when I sing this in the mm. piece, I think there's this thing of I get the I get the feeling that um, she wants she has to acknowledge and face her mortality because she is she is dying, so she is on her journey of making those those moments and it's very powerful you know because we often in our culture do not confront it in a healthy way it's this thing that's unspoken of um, until it until it confronts you. And it's a wonderful thing that we should, we should so that we can embrace, so we can float in this beautiful expanse of enjoying life with all of its complexities. It's a wonderful mm. thing. And I think, I think um, Uridisa does do this and she wants to, you know, she goes to that place of acceptance and she wants him to go there as well. Absolutely. And Through this poem, it's like showing they're different, they're in different places at that point in the mm. piece where she is in that place of exploring that through practicing this aria as well, being drawn to the poetry, being drawn to this piece. I imagine that she is exploring these thoughts and and he hasn't gotten there yet. He's he's been guided to and of course, you know, you don't get it's as long as a long road. It's a hugely long road, and we mm. we only end at the kind of beginning of a of a yeah, turning. And uh, uh, it, I mean, the version you sang for Argava mm. um, wow. was it's interesting. You talk about it, it's a gift, Paula, that you give to Ben because the the version Ben sang Argava was, was the it? last piece of music written as a gift by Peter Lieberson to his wife Lorraine Hunt Lieberson, the, the great mezzo soprano, as she was dying of breast cancer. Um, there's something in this piece about that. Yeah. Um, yes. yeah. Um, Andrew, can you can you tell us something about? Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. It, it, it seems like such a incongruous thing to say we're going to throw a Rilke sonata in German into a piece that's originally in French and Italian. We're singing it in English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I mean, I, I everything that you've been saying has just been it's so wonderfully thought provoking. Um, uh, the the idea. The idea that you know what this what this sonnet is gesturing towards, at least for me when I read it, seems to be about um, you know all of the things that you've been pointing to, right? How do we deal with tragedy? How do we make something out of tragedy? Um, how do we take um, uh, loss um, and do something with loss other than other than 
um, be uh, faced with the silence of it, the unutterable quality of it. Um, and in a really interesting way, I mean, so, so Wilker writes the, the Sonus to Orpheus um, uh, in a sort of insanely like in, uh, productive, it's like a span of two weeks that he writes this. Um, uh, and it's a set of uh, 55, 56 sonnets, I forget, um, in response to the death of a friend of his, of his daughter. Um, uh, and it sort of takes the, the um, Orpheus myth and sort of builds the series of sonnets roughly around that narrative. But in Rilke's way, it's hugely elusive. I mean, Rilke is understood as this quite mystical poet. Um, um, as you were saying, Paula or Ben, I forget who, that, that, that like you just keep reading it and there's more and more that you get from it every time that you read it, right? Like it's inexhaustibly complex and interesting. Um, uh, and Rilke is writing this, right? So he's, I think he writes the sonnets to Orpheus in the 19-teens, 1920s. Um, it's quite late, a couple, he, I think he, he dies a couple years after. Um, so it's, you know, at the end of his career, quite late, he's, you know, lived through the fin de siècle and, uh, you know, seen World War One, and is sort of thinking about, like, what do you do in a world that seems to be falling apart? Um, uh, and I think he looks to, to poetry and to, to the transcendental possibilities that art making carries inside of it. Um, there's a way of looking at this last poem. I think there's some, some hints. This last poem is actually a poem he writes as a kind of address to himself um, and a kind of reflection on his own work as poet. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was sort of looking the poem over um, and there's this one line um, at the beginning, I think it's uh, the second line of the, of the sestet at the end um, in the German, um, or the, the, yeah, the first tercet of the sestet. Seien diese Nacht aus Übermaß Zauberkraft und Kreuzweg deiner Sinne, right? This amazing idea, Zauberkraft, right? The, the, the making of magic, um, Kreuzweg, right? At the, the place of crossing, at the crossroads um, of, your, of your senses, deiner Sinne. Um, uh, and that's, that seems to me such a, a, a powerful invocation um, to think about the things that we do, not just to aestheticize, right? Like this isn't a poetry that's about the kind of decadent aestheticism of like uh, uh, an Oscar Wilde, um, you know, a really, you know, sort of quintessential fin de siècle poet. Um, but this is a, a kind of aestheticism or an aesthetics of living um, right, it's an aesthetics that invites us to think about how one lives artfully, not how one produces art, but how to make the life one lives artful, and thereby to derive profound meaning and and possibility um, from the life one lives. Um, there's also something really cool about this line that that draws. Can, I, can I just jump in, Andrew? Oh, yeah, yeah. You don't know this, but I, I, it interests me to a podcast. And I end the podcast every time by quoting Tagore and a line he has that our primary work of art, the first work of art we make is living civilly. Mm. How we live, our life is our first work of art. 
Yeah. It's amazing that you just said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think it's, I think it's very much here in, in, in this poem. And it resonates so, so beautifully with the story that we're telling through this, through this opera. Um, I mean, the one place where this sort of resonated really curiously for me, um, I, I'm actually a lot less familiar with the, with the sonnets than I am with an early poem of, of uh, Rilke's um, called um, Orpheus, Eurydice, Hermes. Um, which is a longer narrative poem. Um, I encountered it way, way back as an undergrad and it just kind of stuck with me in part because it does the kind of thing that we've been talking about, right? It takes the Orpheus narrative and twists it a little bit, retells it a little bit um, so that you get a very different understanding of Eurydice. You actually get a kind of insight into Eurydice's subjectivity in that poem. Um, uh, see, I have it here. Um, yeah, I mean, there's this great, I'll, I'll read you the um, Franz Wright's translation of uh, sort of middle stanza. Um, and it, again, what it gives us is this insight into Eurydice that uh, normally we never get. She's a kind of figure inside the plot otherwise, but here Rilke is really interested in, in inviting us into her experience. And he writes, but she walked alone holding the God's hand, her footsteps hindered by her long grave clothes faltering, gentle, and without impatience. She was inside herself like a great hope and never thought of the man who walked ahead or the road that climbed back toward life. She was inside herself and her being dead filled her like tremendous depth. As a fruit is filled with its sweetness and darkness, she was filled with her big death, still so new that it hadn't been fathomed. This is amazing evocation of Eurydice's experience as Orpheus is leading her to the surface. And interestingly, Rilke inserts Hermes into this narrative. Normally Hermes doesn't show up inside this narrative. It's just Orpheus is supposed to walk and Eurydice behind him and he's not supposed to turn around, but um, Rilke inserts Orpheus um, both as the sort of patron god of, of travelers um, as the patron god of crossroads, which was the initial link for me, the, the Kreuzweg in the, in, in the last sonnet, um, reminds me of Hermes showing up um, inside this early poem. But Hermes is also um, the sort of patron of like creativity and interpretation, um, of, of thinking and reflecting, um, of the mystical, of the, um, of the magical. Um, uh, and so his presence here in this poem, to me, is it's all about both the transformative power of um, this myth, but also the transformative power of art making. Um, there's something I think really interesting about how Farilka, Hermes and the crossroads and the transformative power of being at a crossroads seems to be a really important piece of how he imagines this myth. Um, and I think in a weird way that kind of weaves its way into what we did with the piece, thinking about how it invites a transformation um, that happens hermetically, that happens sort of below the surface in ways that are difficult to put a finger on, um, but profoundly effective. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. It's like, I mean, in the way we didn't, we sort of like kind of routinely deny our mortality um, and then, you know, for it, for it to be such a fundamental 
you know, for us for us to be at the crossroad of our senses, only only sort of in extremis in those in those situations, mm. it kind of just it it, it it all it just straight away makes me think of of um, you know, as you say, how how we should be living, but in in a kind of profound sort of everyday way, like how we should be thinking of life, how how we should be acting, and and um, you know how we how we value life because it's all it's all meshed together in in death is how as valuing of of life and and of course we want to celebrate life in death but it always feels like you're you're sort of choosing to either ignore death and celebrate life or to kind of immerse yourself in the suffering and it's you know and and I also just thinking about grief and and grief not being confined to death and thinking about grief in in in, in a multifaceted way um you know what it means to um grieve and i you know part of yourself or um uh your identity when you change as a person in particular i think is a really interesting way of thinking because we we're constantly shifting and and often we are just sort of stuck as as the stories we tell ourselves in our own our own narratives and of course there's a transformational point especially with with grief in loss in mm. death um uh but there's this sort of these mini you know, kind of uh, many, we sort of experience, we should in this state of flow sort of always be sort of experiencing this grief and being very kind of in tuned with this kind of grief. Mm -hmm. In change is this loss. It's kind of inherent mm -hmm. in the fabric of, of our lives. And I think that the, the more, the kind of deeper you see it, the more it, it's not like, how do we deal with grief when we have loss? We have to have this time of, you know, this all, this time where we need to make sense of this time, but it's, 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 it's sort of, it's much more, it's much more kind of profound than that. It is, it's, it's, um, that's sort of the first step towards seeing, um, you know, your everyday life. And I think as artists, you know, we, um, we are confronted with it a lot more than other people on a far more regular basis. Um, but I think that's, that's where, um, you know, where we want people to have these moments um, in their in their daily life, or where they where art influences them, and of course we want you want it to to be more meaningful and more long term and more transformational. And this sense of this sense of like a kind of kind of in, in, like daily transformation. Um, I don't know if it, if, if it might be. It sounds too too sort of um, mystical for or, or not mystical is the wrong word, but um, mystical is absolutely the right word. Yeah. Perhaps, perhaps <laughs> there's nothing to apologize about me. Yeah. What I love about the no, poem yeah. is the way the poem rejects Cartesian thought. Yes, like I love, not I think, therefore I am. I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll stop. There, yeah, I am. And there's something really, really, I think, lovely about uh, how you've been framing this, Ben. In that, right? So we could think about change as loss, right? That when something changes, something, it needs to be sort of given up in order for something to move forward, right? So we could think about change as loss. We could think, think about the passage of time as loss. Um, I mean, there's something in particular about music as uh, an art form that is time bound, that's event bound. Um, it's that sort of thing that makes, I think music and sound so profound and, and interesting and, and, and moving, right? Is that you can't, you can't grip onto it. It, it disappears as you do it. Um, and rather than think about that um, quality of 
change and temporal passing and being in process and the evanescence of the event, instead of thinking about those things as losses to be mourned, right? There's this other way of thinking about it, of, of recognizing it as like profound process, as the thing that expands ever outwards um, in these really beautiful and promising and life-giving ways. I, I, I wholeheartedly totally agree with that. And I think that it just it draws me straight to thinking of the, the, na the nature of mind itself. And as you say, you know, the way that music is ephemeral, we can't grasp it. I mean, everything is, has that, has that, has that flavor, has that, um, uh, that quality, um, you know, you know, every, every thought that appears in our, in our, our brain, every, every sensation that we experience is a moment. And yet we build this sense of continuity and narrative and even personal identity and all these things which are, are constructs. And when you, when you do look deeper, um, or not even deeper, but when you just look, when you, when you observe, it's quite startling, I think. And I think, uh, I mean, again, this is <laughs> going down a path which is winding <laughs> towards somewhere, but, um, but I think that that kind of nature of the mind is, mm. It, it is there all the time. It is, it, it, you know, it is constantly flowing, but it is constantly what it is to, to be us. But I'll, I'll, pull that... it, I'll pull it back. Yeah, to, take, take the no, 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 in a very direct way, which is what you're saying is exactly true about the crisis in opera is directly connected to the way we approach a canon, as if a canon can exist, as if, as if uh, I mean, La Boheme is no less a myth than Orpheus. The idea that we would keep mm -hmm. La Boheme the way La Boheme always is exactly the problem because it has to live. The, the, the relationship with a text is what happens between me and the text, not the text itself. Um, and speaking of text, um, uh, I, I hope I'm not going to embarrass Andrew, but I think, I think the dominant voice in what we've made um, that may not seem like the dominant voice is Andrew's text. Um, yes, absolutely, yeah. And uh, it's something I struggle with a lot, this question of whether to present our work in English or not. Um, uh, I think most most people in my position as an opera, as an opera producer, well, not most, but many feel, particularly in, in the UK, that there's value in presenting in, in the language of the audience. Um, and there's a history of that. There's actually more history of that than producing an original language. Um, but we also, I think, all feel, and here's a loss, a sense of loss with, um, with the, the, the um, original language. Um, and, and so I've always struggled with whether to present in English or in original language. And right now what we've been doing is going back and forth depending on how, how important that text is to me. Um, but uh, I think the real problem is that we don't, elevate the role of, and, and Andrew wants to be called a translator, um, in my soul I still feel the role of the poet uh, in, um, in, making, in making that, um, that translation um, in a way that is also living, that is also you know, fitting what we're gonna do with the piece. Um, Gluck recognized that when Gluck, when Gluck rewrote the piece from Italian to, to when he moved to Paris and presented in Paris, he didn't just uh, uh, translate the, the, the Italian into a same verse in, in, in French and, and fit the same recipe. He rewrote the piece because um, he was working in a new language. Um, I've long dreamed of, be, of working with um, a translator 
um, to develop it together with the themes of the piece, the idea of the piece. And Andrew's done this miraculous thing where there's no moment. I mean, there are places where we diverge a lot from certainly how the piece has been interpreted, but also probably how it was intended. Um, and yet I can't point to those moments and say, Andrew's not translated what's written. He's always gone off some image or some idea in the poetry. And what we arrive at is a, a completely authentic version and a completely personal version that fits this project um, uh, uh, perfectly. And um, also is, is one of the most beautiful singing I mean, writing a translation is very hard for opera um, mm -hmm. to, to fit the language, Absolutely. the same uh, syllables, the same uh, stresses to make it singable. Um, part of that is because you guys were involved in the process, Ben and Paula. Um, but I want us to make sure we talk about um, what that was, what, what the work Andrew did. And maybe we'll let you start, Andrew, be, uh, talking about, mm. about what it is you do, because I don't think people understand that, and then how how it was unique in this case. And then maybe Ben and Paul, you can jump in because you do a lot of singing in English in the UK. It's very much part of the, the tradition um, about what it was to be involved in the translation as opposed to what usually happens where you're handed a yes. translation that someone wrote 16 <laughs> years ago for the ENO. <laughs> <laughs> um, sure, so um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the whole process I have to admit, it had been a while since I've had the creative opportunity to sit down and do this kind of work. Um, I mean, I've, I've, translating is a, is a big part of you know, what I do professionally sometimes. My first book was a big translation of a Latin text. Um, and you have to make lots of really creative choices and think really carefully about how you translate. But this was something different, right? Because we weren't just translating in order to get the original French into English, a comparable English. We were translating in order to get that original French into an English that mapped onto the prosody of the original, that mapped onto the musical rhetoric of the piece as it appears in score, um, that made sense with the musical logic, um, and as well that cohered with the vision, the, the sort of narrative vision that Tim Yu came to us with. Um, and so we, we had these really, I think, interesting and long conversations about, you know, well, well, what will translation look like here, right? What is the, what is the thing that we're aiming to hold on to? What's the core? Um, and I do think it's really important. And it's why I think translators is the term I'm, I'm more comfortable with. Because like, there's always something um, that's rooted in the original and what I'm doing in the text. And that was very deliberate, right? I wanted to make sure that the original had some kind of important, stable, and staying presence inside what, what showed up in the text that we came up with together. Um, but I, so I was thinking about this before and, and it's, not an exact, it's not an exact explanation, right? But sometimes when I'm talking about, like when I'm, when I'm working with students and I'm talking to them about the difference between plot and narrative, right? Um, that like plot is a series of fixed points, right? So um, the queen died, the king died, right? That's plot. Um, narrative is what happens in between those moments, right? So the queen died and then the king died because of love, right? That's narrative. Um, you've done something to the fixed points in order to make narrative happen. And as I was thinking about it, I was like, that's kind of what I feel like I did with the translation, right? There were these fixed points that I wanted to make sure stayed stable. And those could have been images, those could have been 
um, certain certain words that I wanted to make sure made it into the original. Um, we had uh, some really interesting conversations about um, uh, the the original French refers to the 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 body a number of times. It used the the word corps a number of times over the course of the libretto, and and it was really, really interesting to try to figure out like what's going on there and how do we retain the resonances of that inside the translation? Because it seems like there's something important. The word shows up a couple of times. It seems to be this thematic thread that's doing something. Which is quite powerful for us. The idea that he's saving her body. Yeah, indeed. But there's indeed. more to her than her body. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think that too, right? That things that show up in the in the original libretto that might otherwise just kind of amble past as just an aspect of the language, given the way that we were thinking about this production, all of a sudden came into new relief, right? Certain turns of phrase, certain word choices, certain states of mind or sort of character choices, all of a sudden started to look differently and become newly interesting. Um, and so, part of what I wanted to do was to try to hold on to as much of that as possible and then to bring out the new stuff that was coming into relief um, in, the, in the translation. Um, and I mean, as you gestured towards, right? Like this isn't just me doing the work. This was me being in dialogue with you about what kinds of things you wanted out of it and what kinds of, what kind of a vision you had about this project as a whole, what story you wanted to tell. And it was me being in dialogue with, with Ben and Paula about like, well, what do, you, what, do you, what do you want these characters to say and do? Like, what are the emotional states that you want these characters to, to inhabit and express? And, and, you know, when you try this, you know, try this on in your own, on, in your own voice, right? Like, where does this work? How does this work? Um, and it really was such a pleasure being able to be like, right, so writing for the voice, writing for the singing voice is a very specific kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And to have this, really interactive and collaborative set of, of singers to be able to bounce ideas off of and talk about vowels and talk about where in the voice the musical line stands and what vowels work well or what consonants will help articulate and get the sound out there. Like, uh, this is really interesting stuff I, for me. Yes, if I, <laughs> I think, yes, I mean, it was, it was a real, as, as you said before, Tim, that, you know, you normally just sort of handed a translation and you sort of have to live with it. And Told good I've, luck. I've never. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I, I've never really. When you sing that phrase. <laughs> yes. I think that it, it's a huge, it's a huge um, uh, reason why people are not particularly comfortable singing in English is because the translations are often mm. not very sophisticated, not very, they're not, you know, not worked in this way with the singers. They are, um, you know, losing a lot of the original character, or 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 always mm. making a constant compromise and having to change recit, and and I think that it was it was wonderful. I mean, what you what you you know what you did, Andrew, even just to start was already such a wonderful, mm. um, poetic but um, singable. Um, uh, you know, I think I think that one of the one of the, the, diff the difficult difficulties is how much meaning can be grasped in a sung line yeah. and what is going to be received um and it's often i mean even when i was going through this process as well just kind of i would speak a line and be like oh that's that's fantastic and you know i i really get the sense but then you sing it and you realize that because of the duration of this note Something's just lost. or this syllable like you just yeah. it's just likely to perhaps be lost but then of course you see you sing it again or or some you know 
you have to be constantly reminding yourself somebody's, somebody's hearing it for the it's first time. So you see, you have, you've got one chance to sing it to each other to see if it, if it works. Um, and I think the having the the, the um, ability to collaborate with you and to yeah. to have things to be um, adaptable was was wonderful because Incredibly at the special. at the end of the day, you know, it is that relationship between mm. what is actually going to be sung and what is the audience going to perceive, um, which is the 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 end the goal and I think to be able to retain so much of the poetry um, uh, and and the kind of the, the looks meaning and our narrative is mm. is really I mean amazing I I mean I really I mean there's so many moments which were um, that's mm. the one you, you pointed out there there are many many more but yeah. I think I mean how, yes yeah I mean it's the moments where you have a more creative freedom and especially when we're, cha- when we're changing things, it must, mm. must, it must have been quite interesting for you, um, that having those moments of more freedom and how you felt like you were sort of, you know, how, how much did you feel like you were collaborating with, you know, the original and... Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, those moments uh, where we needed to depart a little bit more actively from the scripted action and scripted text um, were moments of... Um, significantly greater anxiety on my part <laughs> because, well, in some, yeah, because in I'm some ways because like in some ways right those moments you are more is being asked of you right um, um you're being asked to contribute a greater portion of what's showing up on the page um and to take greater ownership and responsibility over what's unfolding on the page and that's exciting right um but also it's really hard um uh, and as you're saying, right, like especially running for the for the singing voice, um, you have to you have to compress so much, um, and you have to leave a lot to what's like you have to you have to be able to execute in sort of very brief gestures um, enough that what what's left unsaid can get communicated through expression, can get communicated through voice. Um, so there's a lot more, um, there's a lot less um, uh, uh, um, explicitness, um, I feel, and what it is that you do when you're writing for this kind of a medium, right? Like mm-hmm. a lot happens through inference and a lot happens in between the lines. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, part of what I think our dialogue as we were talking things through was like you guys reminding me of that, right? You guys helping me recognize like, all right, so we can do this much more simply if we take this approach and it's way more elegant in the, in the, the long run and it, it, it works a lot better for the medium. And I think that, yes, yes, I, I think that we were lucky as well um, to, you know, with, with you, with you Tim, uh, and with Simone to have the flexible, you know, complete kind of flexibility over the music as well. And in a way, obviously trying to have this similar, similar kind of relationship with the music, but also being extremely mindful that as, you know, as we know, all these composers change things all the time to suit all of these things that we're talking about right now. I feel like we, like we sort of, you know, we we just, we're in part of a similar sort of process that it would be, would have been like. And, Mm. um, I think people do, creative. people Incredibly are creative, isn't yeah, it? and, and people yeah. are, people are so so can be so slavish to to um, you know to to the exact notes or the exact text Aversion. in a way which is completely losing sight of the point mm. 
of we're what the, we're actually trying to do in the first place. We're mm-hmm. the ones doing original practices. Is the <laughs> exactly this? Yeah, is, it feels it was so exciting. I think and 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 when we when I think through the process of it finding when when new words when you would give us new text and we would be trying it out and we'd be doing it and it was almost like a trying on a new pair of shoes and mm-hmm. and trying to walk in them and and feel how it feel and 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 but what happened in the end is so much clarity and honesty and i think that takes that process to achieve doesn't it like that honesty of just saying things and now all of a sudden just going whoa, like that's, that's it. You know, that's all that needs to be said. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you just, and it's unbelievably clear and powerful because, because it's, because you get it straight away, you know, and that's what you could do when you have English as well in a living translation of a living production. You can have something that is understood in, in a, in, in a visceral sense an emotional sense not just can I hear the words that are that she's singing up there yeah. you can actually understand what she's meaning and what she mm-hmm. is trying to convey and yeah, that. that's beautifully that's beautifully said Paula I I um a lot of what you guys just said helps tie into to a place I thought would be be good to to end on um which uh, when you when you talk of I think about the way it's, it's become very um we're starting to become more aware as a society that um, quantitative knowledge isn't the only form of valued knowledge. That there's mm-hmm. traditional knowledge, there's impar- in intuitive knowledge, is also, but um, there's also the value of ignorance, in the same way that there's the value of death within the context of life. Um, uh, and and I love Andrew what you say about more being asked of you in those moments just as during COVID, during this, as an arts company, and as for us as artists, for us as human beings, more is being asked of us. And it's exciting, but it's also hard. Um, and and uh, at least in process, Andrew, but I think maybe in the type of project, you, you haven't done this sort of work before. Um, ben, you've not been, been a film star before. <laughs> Paula, Paula, you either, nor do I think, have you been craft services maiden, a set set designer, best grit no boy, all the other things you did during the building of the project. Uh, I've, never, I've never directed a film. In the spirit of, of Rilke's I Am, the theme of this season is I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh. None of us have. And there's value in that ignorance because I think the, I think the thing we're making is, is, which is which sort of what you've been saying is so honest because we didn't know what we were doing. So we didn't, we didn't do it in a traditional way. Um, we were able to be free of the burden, uh, the t- terrorism of, of tradition um, and to discover it for ourselves. I'm, always, not saying that, I'm not saying that we should all- we should I always used to think this are, this are, sorry. Uh, but, no, but, but, but we should own the fact that that we don't have to know how to do something in order to do yeah. something. And we might end up doing it better. I, I think that is interesting and creativity can be, can you know, can thrive in such conditions and, um, you know, not not necessarily, I mean, I've, for us, we were discovering so much um, about, I mean, what it's like to simply be a film, film actor, you know, what, to going in and out of character in, you know, not necessarily doing things in order, 
having sort of short, short. We I think we ended up having shorter, more film-like scenes than we originally thought of long continuity because it's just so practically difficult to achieve that. Well, that's no. a great example. I mean, I did a I did a, a storyboard and realized I'd done the whole thing in one shot. I know. Yeah. <laughs> We tried. We tried. Yeah, we, we tried, tried it. it. Yeah. <laughs> and and thinking about characters, thinking about your emotional state and having continuity in that state from one scene to the next. With and, with and, Tim on a laptop on the bookshelf, but directing. Yeah. <laughs> While yeah. we're doing it. But one of the beautiful things about it is also, I I've expressed this to you, and and I'm sure a lot of people won't agree. For me, I, this opera has never worked on stage. I've never seen a production that works for me. Yes. Um, I love the music. I don't understand how it works as a piece of drama. And I mm. would have said it's a flawed piece. <laughs> but actually, in this film context, it feels born for it. It feels yeah. like you can zoom in on in the emotional state of, of particularly Orpheus in a way you could never do on stage. Yes. And you I, have all these trappings of a ballet and all the other things that go on in a big stage production of the group that mm. um, they get away. So maybe Gluck was just ahead of his time. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, than he thought. Yeah, I think I think I hope I really hope that that comes across in the film, um, and I hope people you know, we, it, yeah, the final product and and how people relate to that we'll we'll, we'll bring that to um, to bear I think, um, but it, it really I really do strongly agree that in something so personal, um, you know, even even when it's set on stage, even in the original kind of context with with Hades and you know everything, mm. it's it's still the story is still i mean of course people don't always tell that that story of honesty but um of honest of grief um but it, it is so personal and if you feel so far away from it mm-hmm. um and when you see um the opera you know when you when you see it on on your computer or your or your television and you have the dvd and it's and it's sort of close it still it still feels because because people are sort of still trying to fill the 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 space it, that they're sort of projecting the emotion mm-hmm. in a way which is just hard to hard to fully believe um of course mm-hmm. some artists are, are, are pretty amazing at it even in those conditions but i think putting the whole thing on, on film in a such a completely real way you know you know intimate, and, intimate and, is i mean intimate is an understatement we're in your house we're in your bedroom very very intimate tim it really, <laughs> it was it was it was it was very intimate um, but but I I think that is we shouldn't we shouldn't uh, dwell uh, we should we should dwell for a second just on what it was like to you know be at home and and you know with my real wife I'm sort of imagining I mean it there was a level of I had to be I had to be we both had to be careful yeah. um, and in some senses it was an impos- it was it's impossible to fully. Um, protect yourself from from falling into into too you know to being too real, um, but but I think that I hope that 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 really um, is a powerful thing that 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 it, it is it it certainly felt and we'll see how how it looks so so close to so to a reality um, in a, um, and I think that. Yeah, so it's it's not just going from opera to, from stage to film. It's 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 everything. It's like it could not be more of a. Well, I mean, the thing is, is that I've never we've never worked together in this way before. Like I, we've never worked together. So and but to do this, in an opera, yeah. in an opera and doing these um, 
but this particular relationship, which is like the ultimate intimate kind of one of the most with your own children in the piece with our own children, and it's that whole thing of the you know being incredibly personal and intimate, and something that you do discuss in a healthy relationship. You know what happens. You know where's the will. You know what's what's going to happen. You know you do have these very difficult conversations, or at least you should um, have these difficult conversations. But we kind of felt that we were living kind of through something and <laughs> in real I time. Feel, I still feel myself. Don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> I still feel myself suffering with guilt every time I say this. I'm about to say it, and I'm going to suffer with guilt, and I, I hate if I if I bring pain to anyone for saying it. But it's one of the gifts of COVID. I mean, this piece would never have been made in this way yeah. um, without the opportunity that was afforded us. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that is the lesson that in 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 everything. There, there, there's life. There is the generative, mm-hmm. even in death. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, Andrew. I wonder if you might give us last words. Gosh, um, Sorry, put you on the spot. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I'm just you know excited as can be to to, to see the thing because <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing. Like my my relation to this has been you know at front loaded, and then I've kind of like faded into the background and let y'all do your work. Um, and wow, yeah, I am so curious to see what this sounds like and looks like. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's been a remarkable project to be involved in. Um, uh, and, and as you were pointing out, right, like it is very much a, a, a product of the moment that we're living through. But I think also when we were initially talking about it, it also feels like it's a, a potential gift to the moment that we're living through too, right? That like this is, in, the, in, in the, the themes and topics that this piece takes on and the ways that it thinks them through and the intimacies that it invites us into um, and the intimacies that it invited all of us into and hopefully our, the audience into, right? Like there's this part of me that, that, that is hopeful that a piece like this will be helpful, will be not just beautiful and delightful, but also helpful, will do mm-hmm. you know, important work for people um, as we're working through really challenging and difficult times where mortality and health and the risks that surround it are kind of all around us, um, even if it doesn't touch us personally. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I, there's something very much of the moment about this um, that makes it, I don't know, like it, it, in a really like exciting way and an encouraging way. Like it gives me a little bit of hope about what opera can do and where opera can go. Right. Um, yes. It's, yeah. 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 It feels, it feels, yes. No, I, I should let, I let you, should let you in, but it's, I, I feel like it's where opera, um, it's, it, it couldn't be further away from the, you know, the kind of opera work that, 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 that we've done is it feels like it's pushed it to the absolute, uh, to limit or to a different place altogether, all really, yeah. um, and one that that has been amazingly rewarding, incredibly exciting. Yeah. Well, thank you, friends. Thank you so all. much. <laughs> thank you for doing the more that is being asked of you. Um, <laughs> uh, and and I look forward to seeing uh, you and and the rest of our interiors family at the uh, the artist reception, which will happen um, at four thirty on November the first. 
coincidentally or not coincidentally, Essence and Accident, All Saints Day. Um, yeah. And uh, um, thank you for the beautiful work you've done. <laughs>